This is L. Russell Brown, the writer of Tie Yellow Ribbon and Knock Three Times. You're listening to Robert Miller's podcast, Follow Your Dreams. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the award-winning Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the great Lou Christie, an incredible singer. With his distinctive falsetto voice, he was a one-man hit machine in the 1960s with songs like his number one smash, Lightning Strikes, The Gypsy Cried, Two Faces Have I, and Rhapsody in the Rain, all of these that he composed together with his writing partner, Twyla Herbert. He was featured in Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars and on all the major music TV shows like Where the Action Is, Hullabaloo, and American Bandstand. And he's working on putting it all together into a memoir. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all of my musician guests, Lou and I are going to do a song fest where we'll play a handful of all of these hits and you'll get the backstories. And you know that I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow. And in this instance, my featured song is My Baby. Why did I choose it? Well, it's a rockin' little number, and I can just imagine how it would sound with a Lou Christie vocal. So Lou Christie, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you. Thank you. It's my plan. Nine? How, how many uh, countries? 200 countries, not nine countries. I didn't even know there were 200 countries. It's exactly right. Every continent. Okay. You're going on a world tour, Lou. Let's go, baby. Not bad, huh? <laughs> I'm starting to pack. <laughs> That's all I've been doing my whole life is packing and moving on. I can imagine. Okay. Well, those days are over. Now you can just do it from the comfort of your living room and you're going around the world. Let's go. All right. You know, I like to pick things out of people's biographies to start the show with. And the thing that jumped out at me was I loved your birth name. Okay. Luigi Alfredo Giovanni Sacco. Have I got that right? That's got, you got it right. All right. Now, why did you change it? That's a great name. Because it wouldn't fit on the damn record. <laughs> It was too long. The same reason that everyone changed their name, you know, back there. I mean, even Frankie Avalon's Frankie Avaloni, uh, Bobby Ridarelli, Fabian, just Fabian went under what name. But, you know, that was a period in time that, uh, you know, you didn't even show your ethnicity. You know, you sort of kept it uh, white Anglo-Saxon, you know, <laughs> Blue Christie was like, uh, it. you know, you can't read Luigi Alfredo Giovanni Sacco, you know. You know, it's a little hard for the disc jockeys to even spit out, you know, in that period. And you're right. It wouldn't have fit on a 45 RPM record. No, not at all. No, no, no. It's like no one would even know how to say that. 
But it is interesting, so many of the great stars of that period did have stage names. I was looking up a couple. Frankie Valli, for example, was Francesco Stephen Castelluccio. There you go. And Connie Fran. Right. Bobby Darren, Walden Robert Casotto, and uh, Leslie Gore, who I think you worked with, Leslie Sue Goldstein. I think, think I worked with. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> I know. All right. Talk about, you know, you grew up in Pittsburgh or nearby to Pittsburgh. Did you come from a musical family? My whole family sang. I thought everyone could sing uh, when I was growing up because I, I lived on a farm. Uh, we had a farm of uh, 109 acres of... Uh, crab apple trees and things like that. And my father was, uh, he was an Italian that, you know, grew a lot of things in the garden. Whatever he grew, we ate. Whatever he shot with the gun, we ate in the woods. <laughs> um, I mean, that's just the way it was growing up. Uh, and our whole family sang. They, they really had perfect pitch. My father sang and my mother sang. And all my brother and Amy, my sister, sang because she did a lot of the early records with me. You know, we would wash dishes and dry dishes after dad came home and we had dinner. And uh, we sang all the time. The whole family sang. So I just assumed that everyone could sing. And uh, until I got a little older and, you know, started going to school and getting out in the world, I found out that people really can't sing. And it shocked me because I, I thought everyone could sing because that's what we did in our family. Now, was your family, your family, did they sing opera? Did they sing popular music? What kind of things were they singing? My mother was the first one to turn me on to Peggy Lee. She had, we had, they had big 78 records, you know, uh, whether it was Perry Como or uh, Frank Sinatra, Peggy Lee, jazz, uh, country music, uh, you know, I was raised pretty much on listening to the WWVA Jamboree out of Wheeling, West Virginia, or the Grand Old Opry. But I mean, there was just any kind of music was in our soul. Uh, maybe because my dad from Italy was just all this Italian stuff, but uh, we sang, he sang some Italian songs and mom sang some Polish songs. And that's just the way I was raised. I was just music. And that was the best part of my life between that and the animals that I was raised with on the farm, you know. You can imagine. They were my friends. <laughs> you know, you mentioned Perry Como, and uh, the Super Bowl just happened. And, of course, everybody looks and listens to the commercials on the Super Bowl. I don't know if you saw this, but early on in the game, they had a commercial that featured Perry Como's song from 1957, Round and Round. Oh, gosh. Wow. I know I didn't see that one. It just knocked me out that that was being featured, okay? And it goes round, round, round as a thousand With two hearts above, put it on The one you found, found, found For you know that this is really love Find a weed And it goes round, round, round As it skims along With a happy sound as it goes Along the ground, ground, ground Till it leads you to the one you love All right, I want to get to your amazing recording career because I understand that your first record was called The Jury. 
It was Luigi and the Lions. around 20 years old. Am I right? You are so right. Yeah. Tell me about that one. Well, that was cut in Pittsburgh. And before that, though, Lucci and the Lions were my background kids that I was always involved with through school. And, you know, I had a group called the Crewnecks, and there was two girls and two boys. And I guess Bill and my sister Amy uh, were part of that. And, uh, we ended up doing some backgrounds for a girl called Marcy Joe out of Pittsburgh. And she had a record called Ronnie Come Back. And um, uh, the story is that when I, when I heard that she was from Pittsburgh and the Skyliners were from Pittsburgh, and I was like cleaning the, the garage out, you know, and I heard this jockey playing uh, Since I Don't Have You and da da da. I wanted to get in touch with them because I wanted to be a singer. Because that's what I was doing in my in my in high school and in grade school, you know. So I followed that path, and I met him, and uh, he asked if I would sing some background for the girl called Marcy Joe, and that became uh, that became Luigi and the Lions. And then he our pay for that singing that background, and that record was a hit record, uh, and they loved the sound of our our group and I and when I told him I said oh yeah I'd be glad to do this and you know I said we have a new sound it's different because it's we sound like three mice and he said three, uh, three mice he didn't quite get what I was saying I said well because I sing an octave higher and then Bill is doing an octave sometimes and then we switch parts and and so I played the thing that we had for the background and they just got hysterical they loved the sound and then we did another record called Since Gary Went in the Navy. I see his car and call his mom. We tried to keep in touch ever since Gary went in the Navy. My life has changed. That was a follow-up and uh you know things i did last summer and uh so these were just songs that uh, marcy wrote and other people wrote and we sang the background and then he said you girl you guys ought to you know make your own record and let's let's do a record with you that became luigi and the lions now were you luigi or were you one of the lions i was luigi i still am luigi <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that was, uh, Luigi was like a, um, it's a subsidiary name for Lu Luigi because, yeah, I wasn't going to be called Luigi in, you know, in high school. Uh, it was either Lou or, you know, or Luigi. They started calling me Luigi when I got a little older. That's a pretty cool name. So it became Luigi and the Lions. All right. How did you get into the whole falsetto thing? How did you develop that? I didn't develop it. I, I had, I had it my whole life. I never, I never. I didn't try to develop it. It was natural. That's why I said we all sang and I could sing in any octave. 
but you always sang in that falsetto voice? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my voice uh, picked up a lower voice. I was like the lowest bass in school in the choir. And I could sing the highest uh, if I could vocalize with the tenors, altos, sopranos, and basses. And I was student conductor in school, you know, that type of thing. So it was just, it followed me. Music found me. I didn't, I didn't think it was that exceptional, to be quite honest, because I thought, well, Amy could sing, my sister, my dad could sing, my mother could sing. Then my mother had four other kids and all them, could, they could sing too. So their mother and father, we all had, they had voices that could sing. My mother sang with a big band. We didn't know until I think uh, when I got much older that my mother sang with the big band back in the 40s, I guess. Uh, and she sang like Peggy Lee. And then that's why probably she liked Peggy Lee and turned me on to her. Did you ever have a family kind of thing going on, like the cow sills? No, we didn't think that way. We sang Sunday at the, uh, when my dad, when we had, you know, spaghetti dinners or whatever we did on Sunday, you know, all, and then people would come up and visit and, you know, dad would have his glass of wine and, uh, you know, bring his old guitar out, you know, so, and play, he played about four or five chords and that was about it. And so everything he sang, you know, he'd sing an Italian song and we, we all learned those kind of songs because we sang at the table. And uh, it was like living with Les Paul and Mary Ford, except my dad couldn't play the guitar that well, but he taught himself, you know, enough that he could sing his Italian favorite songs, or uh, he also taught himself an accordion, how to play the accordion. And he was in his 50s then, or 60s, and taught himself how to play the accordion. I have a picture of him with playing the accordion, you know. And we, we all sang. We would, that was the best part, I think, of uh, growing up. I always driven towards harmony. All right. Let's go to the early 60s. You became a pop star. You became Lou Christie. And I think your first hit was The Gypsy Cried in 1962. Am I right? Yeah, that was after Lou G and the Lions. You went from Lou G and the Lions, you became Lou Christie, and you had a big pop hit. Tell us about that. Yeah, both records came out of Pittsburgh. Both of them were cut in Pittsburgh. Lou G and the Lions was cut in a studio where Lenny Martin, who produced the Skyliners, they were from Pittsburgh. So I was sort of, getting to know Pittsburgh and I was getting to, you know, meet the Skyliners and hear their album. I heard their album before. I think anyone heard their album, their first album was since I don't have you and uh, this, I swear. And when I fall in love with Janet taking the lead and all that. You know, I was sort of like then taking a bus to 
Pittsburgh because I lived about 35 miles outside of Pittsburgh on Spring Run Road on a farm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and one thing led to another and then another guy heard me on those records uh, who was cutting records. Uh, he, had a, he had someone by the name of Johnny Jack and I became friends with Johnny Jack and he had a record called Need You and Smack Madam, Mammy Jammy. Need you, your tenderness, your understanding heart. I hurt for you each minute we're apart. I need my angel now. Did background uh, with Johnny, we were friends. Uh, from Pittsburgh, not from Spring Run Road, but I was moving into like Pittsburgh, you know, like taking the bus to Pittsburgh, which was like, for me, like be like going to like New York City. Big city. Big city, baby, you know, from Spring Run Road to um, Pittsburgh, you know, and I was not, we were not sophisticated in any way about going into restaurants and going to Pittsburgh. No, my dad worked in a steel mill and we had a farm and I worked with a pick and shovel and did whatever in the hell my father said do because that was our lives. And uh, that's the way I was raised. Uh, so when this guy heard me doing my backgrounds and doing the things in my, and I sang lead with Luigi and the Lion, so on a record called The Jury, and little did I know. He said he loved falsetto, and I thought, oh, okay, you know, and so he said, let's cut a record. And I said, okay, and then they wanted me to sing like the Fleetwoods. And I said, why would I want to sing like the Fleetwoods? I had my own style, you know, we sound like mice, and we are very sort of interesting the way we sing, because I, I did the vocal backgrounds in odd ways, you know. I would do the high part, or the girl who thought she would do the high part said, no, no, you do the low part, I'll do the high part. Or the guy would say, I would say, Bill, try to do the second part under me. So I, I just love the combination of working with sounds. And that's that's the way I became the Lou, Lou Christie sound, you know. And it was always my, and the same thing with my three people in the background, whether it was Bill or it was Shirley or, or Kay and Amy. And, you know, we always had that background. Because when we wrote the song, I wrote The Gypsy Cried in 15 minutes with Twyla. And so we recorded The Gypsy Cried. Guy says, I'll write my own song. I don't want to sound like the Fleetwoods. But the B-side of The Gypsy Cried was called Red Cells in the Sunset, which was already a hit by, you know, someone in the 50s or 40s. It was great, you know, but it was like a, it was like Fleetwoody, you know, that kind of a, but I, and I said, no, I'll come up with the gypsy. I said, I have to get their attention. I don't want them to say, oh, you sound like the Fleetwoods. No, no, no. No. So that's when I did the, 
chord. I had some trouble with my baby. And I thought, you know, and they were like, this is so weird. But it caught the disjoint attention. It worked. It worked. Totally worked. All right. I guess your first big hit was Two Faces Have I the next year, which got to number six. No, Gypsy Cry was just as big. Gypsy Cry had a million. But years ago, there was no social stuff and you couldn't spread your record uh-huh. by the time gypsy cried hit number one in new york city it was just started to take off in los angeles or chicago so we lit, missed that climb to the top the number one or the top 10 i see so that ended up i think number four or something in the nation when finally there was billboard there was cash box and there was record world Right. But it took us three months to catch up to should I bring out the new record, which happened to be Two Faces of I, which was then ready uh, for in other cities to put that record out. Two Faces of Because Gypsy Cried had already died. You know, it was already finished going up their charts. So it took three months to get it from the East Coast to the West Coast, you know. But they were both million-selling records, my first two records. All right. I didn't mean to demean it in any way. No, no, no. I know the two faces have I got the number six in the country on one of those places. Yeah. Jump ahead to 1966, because that was really a big year for you. You had two big hits. And tell us about them. Of course, you had Lightning Strikes, which was your enormous hit, and also Rhapsody in the Rain. Which came first? And tell us a little bit about them. Well, uh, that was uh, The Gypsy Cried. But I did have two other records in between that and a, and an album, which I had How Many Teardrops Must I Cry. I wish I knew the reason why you've gone and made me blue. You didn't even tell me that you and I were through. You and I have a right to cry. Cause you and I, you and I, have the right to cry. Cause we know that our love will never be. Yes, tonight, you and I, must say goodbye. They went up to like 20 and like 40, but there was someone, if you want to hear the real story, they were trying to break Twyla and I apart as writers because Morris Levy, uh, if you want to get into this, the whole trip of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were with Roulette Records, were you not? Yeah, and they decided they wanted all the publishing and they wanted all my money and they got all my money because when I turned 21 years old, I said, 
I think I have to get out of this contract because so far, guys, you haven't sent me a penny. And I already had two million selling records and I had two other hit records plus an album. And you didn't, you know, and you took my publishing away from me. So it's the old story. Did you know what was happening at Roulette behind the scenes? Or Yes. Because I had Tommy James, for example, on the show, and he went through the whole thing. You know, yeah. in a sense, Roulette made him into a star. But like you just said, uh, they took all the money. Yeah. But, uh, you know what? Uh, I, I'm at the point now that uh, I have forgiven him or have let it go because uh, I felt the same way. He made me a star. I wouldn't have been Luke Christie around the world. I wouldn't be talking to you if he did not <laughs> take the money or put the, and the record out because he knew where exactly to put the damn record in what jukeboxes he was involved with, where this was, where that was, how he could get the record played because it was getting play, you know, and that was the most important thing. If you have a record, you better figure out how to get it played. We're talking now about Morris Levy, who ran Roulette Records, an infamous guy in the record business. But as you just said, he was responsible for your stardom, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if it wouldn't have been for him, I would have found someone else, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure you would have. But, you know, that was that was the record business in the 1960s. So many artists signed away all of their rights, gave up their publishing and things like that. So in a certain sense, Morris Levy didn't do things that were so different from others. But the mob portion of that story was very different. It sure was. Uh, yeah, now they're into other things. We don't have to go into that. But uh, yeah, but that's what it was. They were in the record. He was in the record business and so was a lot of people I was involved with at that time. And uh, it's it's pretty much, I just, I explain it in my book. So, <laughs> uh, but but it's all about, you know, moving, moving ahead in your life because I had to move and write new things all the time and keep going. And that was, you know, that I never got into the business for money. I never, ever, that was never a motivation of mine. It just never was. And it still isn't. I I know that uh, I'm finding out now that I I I brought a lot of uh, interest and 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 happy happy things to people who love music and that's why I got into the business because that's what it was for me it wasn't about money that's the right reason all right I want to work up to that great year of 1966 for you because you had that amazing number lightning strikes and you also had rhapsody in the rain tell us about this i want to hear about this uh, yeah. do you want to hear about how it happened uh, what, i was in the army for six months i said i gotta get out of the army and uh because i was in the reserve unit but uh before that i was traveling with the dick clark caravan of stars you know and that was like breathing rarefied air as far as i was concerned i was you know sitting on the bus with diana ross uh and i you know, that's the whole explanation in my book also. But I uh, I was I, on American Bandstand and I was being shown in, you know, teen magazines and 16 and 19 life and that. And I had to figure out how to stay on the charts. And so I, after I got out of the six month deal um, after uh, the army and I decided uh, to uh, cut lightning strikes. 
Every boy wants a girl he can trust to the very end. Baby, that's you. There's a lot of tumble of how that happened and how that. I don't know if we have time to even go through that. But I did go through it and I recorded the record called Lightning Strikes Twilight. And I wrote it again because they wanted me again to, you know, why do you sing that way? And I thought, because I just had two million selling records from that. So I think I'll do it again. And I did it. And I wrote the song and it became number one on my birthday. Uh-huh. I wrote it. I sang it. And I was like a producer of this thing. And I had a number one record on my birthday. It hit number one. That was so bizarre. I didn't, no one planned it. I wasn't even aware that it was going up the charts. And that week, it went to number one in America. Let me ask you this. When you, when you wrote it and when you recorded it, you had that final product in your hands. Did you know it was going to be a number one? I knew it was a hit. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really think number one though. I mean, I was happy to have a hit record. I knew it was going to be a hit. I knew the Gypsy Cried was going to be a hit. So did Twilight. And I. We both did. The combination of us as writers was something that is beyond something I could even discuss how it happened. We had our own sort of language, the way we worked, the way we wrote melodies, the way we told stories about it. And most of it, all these things are, I guess, sort of explained to a lot of people on the new album that I that is coming out. You know, uh, that's, I think it'll be out this month. Uh, and uh, there's been such interest in so many things. And that's why I finally wrote the book. Uh, because the way we wrote songs was a little different than the rest of the people who wrote I'm going to get married, or I think I love you, or baby, that, you know, I just wasn't the combination of, because she was, I was 15 years old when I met her, and she was like 35, 40, close to 40 at that point. We wrote the first song together, 15 Minutes, The Gypsy Cry. We both had the same connection in some odd commercial way. We wrote the second number one song called Two Faces Have I, Second Million Salad. Who introduced you? No one introduced me. I, I, I saw her when I took my group down to, I mean, it was not, we were not, it wasn't a business for us. She wanted to be a song where she, she was a constant pianist when she was younger. She had two children, two girls. One, they were my age. And uh, she heard that I had a group and you want to come up to her house and, and uh, hear, hear her songs that she wrote. And I did, and I thought, oh, these are really interesting. And then all of a sudden, I took my group up there, the Crewnecks, before they were Luigi and the Lions. I was, I was still in high school, probably a junior high and sophomore maybe at that point. And well, I sat down at the piano with her and I never got up for 40 some years. I mean, we wrote all the time if I wasn't on the road. Uh, the other kids fell away from me, but they helped. 
me doing background because they were all going off to college and there's some of them graduating and you know you know one was pregnant and uh you know i'm we were growing up and things like that happened and that was life but i was focused on my career i was still chasing uh, that rainbow and i ended up with the rainbow so you know uh so certainly did. and and, and she, and we, we just started writing. The first song we wrote together was The Gypsy Cried in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and her daughter sang background, and my sister sang background, and Kay, as another friend of ours, sang background. So it was just Lou Christie, and then the girls did background for me. So um, they they weren't part of it because they didn't want in show business like I did. You know, I had to, like recreate myself but i still knew that sound that was luigi and the lions and to this day i know what that sound is and i know when i go on concerts i know what that has to be and that's why i've traveled with two girls with me all the time because i do the other parts that you know the top like and they will do the harmonies underneath so i've always if i want everything to sound as close to the record as possible i have to have my two girls to give me that even though horns played some of those things it's not like having two girls whine behind you and, and and i we had the sound and i just knew how to organize the sound to give me that commerciality that i needed in my records and i just yep. it's hard to let go of that no you did the right thing because that's what people want to hear they wanted to hear you had such a distinctive approach yeah. to recording and uh good for you you certainly didn't sound like everybody else or anything of that sort you knew when a lou christie record came on it was lou christie thank you that's exactly why she and i thought that way i didn't want to make a record like the beach boys i didn't want to make a record like the beatles i didn't want to make a record like anyone except lou christie and what was lou christie's sound because that's what people were attracted to all right, I got to ask this. It's 1966. You got the number one record in the United States. What did it feel like for you? Did you feel like you had made it? Well, I was concerned about the next record. Uh, <laughs> I, I never, I never took glory in my, in in what in my what I did. I was too concerned about. Oh my God, how are we going to follow this up? Which became Rhapsody in the Rain. I really wasn't aware that it was like number one uh, until it happened. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the number one. And it's on my, and I thought, well, how do we follow up with it? Now what do we, you know, I, I had no time to take a bow or applaud myself. I mean, I don't remember, you know, today, I don't know, people are, I don't having, you know, orgasms over their records and that. I, I just had, let's go. We got to write the next one. We got to figure out how to keep going. 
It's so interesting because, yes, you know, once you're on the top of the charts, and this was a singles era that we're talking about. Yeah. The question became, what's the next single? Exactly. So I totally understand. And, and that was exciting. That was part was exciting for me. Uh, I was, yeah, that's, what's, what do we, how do we write the next one? We got to outdo ourselves or we have to do it without doing it, without, you know, keeping it in the same family, but yet moving it and shifting. I mean, so that's what we did. And we had to write an album. Did you do all the writing or did you have people throwing songs at you at this point? Well, that was the beginning of a major fight. Well, everyone around me, you know, says, you know, started that, you know, and we, Twyla and I had to fight it all the time. I, again, uh, the first album I did, my very first album, when I had Gypsy Cried and Two Faced Sabai, uh, we also had a couple other songs that we wrote uh, on that. But there was always a fight. The producer wanted me to do a lot of other songs that other people did. Uh, and I, and I was reluctant, very much so, because I, you know, I was original. I wanted my originality. That's why I made it. Right. It wasn't because I was singing a Little Anthony song. Was Roulette Records pushing you to do these other things, or how did yeah. that work? Yeah, everyone around me, everyone, uh, they wanted Tw Twyla and I, because we were, we were catching on to... I can see why they want us to break us up because I'm making an awful lot of money uh, for, for them publishing and things like that. And they just think they don't, they didn't know, they don't know about music. They didn't know about hit records to be quite honest. They would throw a dog against the wall and hopefully it would catch on. Right. You know, so I went through that problem when I was did the lightning strikes album. I did half of the album was Twyla and I, the other half was some standards and things like that. But the side that we wrote <laughs> was like fantastic. Lightning strikes, trapeze, crying in the streets, you know, Rhapsody in the Rain, Deronda, If My Car Could Only Talk. I mean, we had such original things. And that was the commercial for me. My commercial ear said that was it. But the other side was nice. I mean, I loved all these songs that I sang, but... It was like, okay, you stop with the falsetto. You had enough of that. But our songs took you somewhere else. When, we, when I, I would use three octaves to do a song, uh, when a, a song that we wrote, a song that Twilight and I would write. And then I would do the other side if I would sing, you know, The Shadow of Your Smile or the, you know, um, Since I Don't Have You. You know, I, it was great songs. And I would use my one octave, you know, or two, without using a falsetto. It didn't have the energy for me. It wasn't a Lou Christie kind of sound. They were nice songs, but they were already hits. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because this is the time in the music industry where the singles world evolved into an album world. And so many of the artists back in that day, you included, of course, there was filler that they put onto the albums because they were trying to sell the hits. And yet they wanted to sell the album, so they had to have the extra songs on there. And I think everybody got caught up in that. Yeah, they did. I mean, you would buy an album and you think, oh, there's the hit. And then the nine of the other songs were boring. And they had no energy. <laughs> you know, they were a lot of that's That's what happened a lot of times. I know. That was the music business. All right, listen, tell me about this book that you're writing, because it sounds like a wonderful memoir. 
Tell us about this. Well, it is a wonderful memoir. And I think it's my, you know, and I think because of the pandemic and everything, I I said, I went upstairs and I picked up the pen and I said, okay, I, I you know, I've got to do something. And I, I started writing and I've been writing it and uh, it's, it's, ready to go. So I'm working on the last part of it. Uh, I've written it. It's completed. It's just organizing it. And um, people are awfully interested in it now. So I just hope it, uh, you know, it, it gets its its own due, you know. And uh, it's so many things because it's about, it's almost like my scrapbook, you know, that I kept because my mother and father in the house in Pittsburgh, where I come from, kept five trunks of memorabilia from my life. I mean, whether it was magazine stories, uh, records, uh, tape recordings, uh, interviews, uh, films from uh, TV shows that I did, all all this stuff, it just went on and on and on for years. And music and, you know, and I'm sitting here with uh, (laughs) all that stuff. And that's gonna be my book, it's gonna be, how it started my first show the rock and roll show that i did in pittsburgh with jackie wilson with uh bobby rydell with uh, you know uh 14 other people on the show then moved out to you know then from there i'm moving in from this one all started in pittsburgh so then from there i was starting to record in new york so that was picking up that end of it and then, of course, uh, the TV shows that were popular, the shindigs, the hullabaloos, the, the, the American bandstands, you know, uh, especially when lightning happened. I was like, I moved to Hollywood. So I lived in Hollywood for about four years. And uh, that was really a whole story of that. And, and of course, shows that I did from there on out, I was constantly on the road every weekend. I've been, you know, I've been on the road for since 1960, I literally, uh, and I just sort of slow, slowing down, thank God, because I, you know, I, I'm seeing what my music has meant now to people. And that's why I guess I'm doing your interview, because I'm getting such interest in it. Uh, and I keep thinking for what, you know, I, you know, but I was, I was talking also doing interviews, but I was always thinking of what's I got to write something next and next. Well, now there's no record business. And so uh, it, it made everyone, you know, sit down and say, OK, take a look at what you did, especially with the pandemic, because a lot of things, the concerts were being canceled, you know, couldn't do them. So we, we were all had to take a break. And that was a, a real sad part of the whole pandemic beside the horrible things that we're all going through now, the aftershock of what the hell went on with our pandemic. But at the same time, it it focused you to do exactly what you just said you did, which is to put it all together. Thank goodness that your parents had that gigantic trunk of stuff. You probably went through everything. Trunks. 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 Multiple trunks. Multiple trunks. Five trunks. We have been speaking here with the great Lou Christie. Lou, you've had an incredible career. I'm so glad that you're still out there. All those great songs that you did in the 60s, they still resonate. They stand the test of time, which is all you can ever ask of a great artist. So I thank you so much for doing this podcast with me. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so glad that I held out to with for my creativity because, uh, and that's just the reason that I think people are so interested. They're 
almost rediscovering me or discovering me uh, to many people. Uh, and uh, stories like this that I'm talking to you about, and thank you for the interview. Well, you got a few generations to catch up on Lou Christie. Okay? Good for- <laughs> yes. All right. We have been speaking again with Lou Christie. We're going to listen now to that song of mine that started the interview. It's called My Baby. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. I said I want to see my baby